Welcome to the Analytical Creative Podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Yang. I wanted to create a podcast that explored how people use their right brain and left brain. Too often, we are defined by our jobs as analytical or creative. However, when I look around, I see that I'm surrounded by people who blend these two aspects of themselves to create meaningful lives. On this podcast, I will be interviewing people who use their right brain and left brain in fun ways, and I will also be sharing tools to help you develop both. Join me as we explore how to use our analytical and creative sides to bring more dimension to our lives. Hi, welcome back to the Analytical Creative Podcast. I'm delighted to have Jessica Kern on my podcast today. Jessica and I met at a meetup to play cash flow. Jessica is a certified neuromuscular therapist who has been in practice since 2005. She assists clients in resolving complex pain patterns. Additionally, she has been a beekeeper for eight years. She actively draws insights from her studies of beekeeping and neuroplasticity to think creatively and scientifically about solving the mysteries around pain. She has a passion for sharing what she has learned, particularly in how to support clients with long-standing or confusing pain issues. Because Jessica and I cover so much, I have split this interview into two parts. The first part, we focus on our work with fascia and neuroplasticity. And the second part, we talk about beekeeping and how this is connected with our fascia work. There are so many good nuggets in here. You don't want to miss it. Hi, Jessica. Welcome to the Analytical Creative Podcast. Hi, Ellen. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Jessica, we met at a workshop and oh, actually we met at a meetup. And from that, I think we just connected and ended up just um, having some follow-up conversations. Through that, I felt like we were kindred spirits and just how our minds worked. Through getting to know you better, I feel that is more and more the case. And I feel that you really embody a lot of the concepts around using your right and, and left brain and bring up some points that I've experienced as well. And so that's why I wanted to talk with you and have this conversation and explore and, and that we can learn from um, your experience and perspective as well. Well, Ellen, I'm honored that you would have been drawn to me as I was drawn to you. I was, as you were talking, I was like, I was like a moth to an Ellen flame when I met you. <laughs> I was like, this lady. And it's fun because when you talk about analytical and creative, I love that in a moment's time, there's a way to discern who we're drawn to. I didn't need to know all the details about you, but there were pieces that was, that my brain was picking up on, analyzing and also like creatively being with in the moment with you that it said, oh yeah, this lady. So I love that that's where we're starting. It's so funny that you actually see that because I have noticed that I, my attention to drawn to people with maybe that kind of mindset too. And I may hear it in like another interview or hear it somewhere or experience it. And then I, and I think, oh, I, I feel like this person thinks like me or experiences what I'm trying to say. And so uh, I love how you, you brought that up because that's my experience too. Yeah. And I want to point to also that it was only later, months later, that I discovered about you that you make the most beautiful flipping jam on the planet. <laughs> when you want to talk about creativity and analysis, being able to harmonize into one beautiful like container, there you are. <laughs> so take yes. one to no one. 
I'm sure that we have both have plenty of examples of how that plays out. And so that's a great segue to how you experience both the analytical inside. And so just to set that up, what is it that draws you to these concepts? And uh, maybe some at a high level, how does that play out in your life? The interplay between creativity and being analytical? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was thinking about it actually on my drive this morning, getting ready for this meeting, which was, well, I'll give an example of where it shows up in my life. I was teaching a class. One of the things that I do is I help people to get out of pain. And one of the things that is not yet commonly worked with in pain settings is a tissue that's called fascia. And fascia in short, for our purposes for this conversation, it's the organized chaos of the body. And it's the organ that helps us navigate the chaos of day-to-day living, you know, oh, I slipped and, you know, there was something I wasn't expecting. The fascial net of my body, this anatomy, if you can follow me with it, even if you don't know what it is, helps catch me so that I don't fall. It's the net. And it looks like chaos. It's a totally organized, elaborate system in the body. And if you look at it under a microscope, it looks like total chaos. And so it takes a tremendous amount of willingness to go into the chaos But I have to be, and this was where I was thinking about it on my drive, I have to be very organized and have a plan as a practitioner. If I'm working with this particular tissue that is chaos by nature, I'm I'm best serving the situation by having a very clear plan, by having data points to work with, and by having a committed plan of how do I enter into chaos to be functional, to be helpful, to be useful and work with it productively. And so that's where the creativity gets to show up is I have this plan, I'm entering this chaos, and something awesome is going to happen. I would say that's one example of where it shows up in my life professionally. And I can continue from there. And I might pause to see if there are any follow-up questions that you have. Yeah. Thank you for explaining that. I had a quick clarifying question. So fascia, you know, I'm a little familiar with anatomy, but Is that a layer of muscle or is that something else? Fascia is connective tissue. And what I'll say about it as it relates to muscle is that it's a continuous sheet of connective tissue that starts just below the skin, connects through the bones, through the muscles, through the ligaments, through the joints, and is everywhere wrapping around everything in a continuous way in the body. So there's no stop and start like there is for a quadriceps, which attaches at certain places, or the biceps, which attaches at certain places. So what I'll tell clients a lot of the time about it to give a reference point is, if you imagine that the human body is like the ocean and the muscles and ligaments are the sea creatures and the coral reefs, the fascia would be like the water. I see. Okay. That's, that's really helpful. And, you know, from very vague recollection of biology, does fascia have like neurons in it or is that where it's contained? You've asked the best question you could possibly ask, which is the fascia is known as the scaffolding for the nervous system. And so what's true about it, that was new information to me early on in my practice as a neuromuscular therapist, and we can get to that in a minute. Fascia contains anywhere between six times and 10 times the number of nerve endings that muscle does, which means in the context of helping people solve problems around having physical pain, which I do a lot of, 
if I work with the fascia, maybe better said, if I don't know that fascia exists and I don't know that the neurons, the the nerves are more active in that tissue, I might be missing more than half the problem, which is a, a reason that I love fascia so much is that it, when I learned about it and understood how it played a role in pain, it totally changed my practice and helped me to be, and talking about analysis, a lot more skilled at how I was going to work creatively with my clients because I could analyze, oh, this is the anatomy of the situation better than I knew it before around where is the pain? Uh, so talking about analysis, where is the pain? It's good if I know, it's, it's good that I learned where that actually was relative to what I used to think. So I was glad for the, I was glad for all the researchers who told me about that. That was really helpful to me under, to understand that this connective tissue, which houses so many neurons, I can now see why it is so important to learn about that and how that plays like a really critical role in pain. You also mentioned that, I believe you said that you are a neuromuscular therapist. Is that right? That's right. Okay. So what is a type of training that you need to become that? And also, was this brought up in your training? The training required for neuromuscular therapy is that first I become a licensed massage therapist. So I believe if I'm a physical therapist, I can also get a neuromuscular therapy license. So long as I have a license to touch people, I can then get my training. And neuromuscular therapy Uh, as compared with massage is I've often referenced it to people as graduate school for massage therapy, where there's a more intensive and deeper dive into understanding anatomy and physiology. So I graduated from massage school in, in 2005. I got certified in neuromuscular therapy and immediately began my course, which was a two year endeavor. And then in 2007, got certified, went through the credentialing for that What didn't happen with fascia until 2007 for me was learning about where the nerve endings actually are, how it influences pain and what to do about it. The the what to do about it has been what I've been unpacking since then. But that information was given to me in 2007 at what was called the first International Fascia Research Congress that was held, fortunately for me, right in my hometown where I was living at the time in Boston. I was in the right place at the right time in a very real way to get to be present at that Congress. So that was, that was where I I learned about it. I think I'm trying to get to the point where you actually realize that this was really critical. And so was this at that conference or was it somewhere else? Yes. The research that was shared about at that conference was, by the way, fascia actually has, to put it simply in, in terms that they're easy Fascia is very much alive. If you look in a lot of the anatomy pictures, it's removed. And all you see, if you were to look at a typical anatomical picture of the human body, you would often see the muscles. And you know, you can imagine there's the person with just in a regular stance, there's the muscles, and then there's there's nothing on top of it. But were you to actually see the body as it is, the net of fascia surrounding the muscles is again very much ever present. And in the in the Congress. Yes, that, that was where they were sharing a lot of this research in a public way for the, for the first time in an organized way where massage therapists, medical doctors, physical therapists, researchers were all in the same place at the same time to talk about it. And questions and answers were happening around the research findings, which, very, which included in this case, 
one, that fascia is very much alive and very much a part of the body that is more sophisticated than a lot of people originally realized in the research Congress. Like, oh, by the way, and part of the reason we now know that is because we've had the technological advances, not only to study this stuff, but to study it in living tissue. So for the first time in history, there was film of living fascia responding to forces of pressure. And no one had ever before seen this, including one example, which was an acupuncture needle being applied in living fascia and living tissue. And the response in the fascia, I can't even describe what it felt like to see it. I'll do my best though to say at this conference that what was shown was on the screen, the acupuncture needle gets applied in this huge wave under the skin that looked quite literally like a wave underwater in the ocean started to move and react around it. And they said, oh, we didn't even think this tissue moved, much less had contractile capability. Look at that. It was uh, really quite something to be at that Congress. I'm just envisioning that right now. And um, one, it sounds like it was very you know, monumental data. And to also visually see maybe the response in a different way than what was expected, it sounds like it was a very a moving experience. Quite literally. Okay, so then what happened after, as a result of seeing that and experiencing that conference? I'd say the lasting impressions from the conference were, and, and you'll hear me use the word conference and Congress, it's interchangeable if anyone, mm-hmm. if anyone listening is like, wait, what's what? Right. Congress? Yeah. The lasting impression I was given was that all of the researchers who were delivering this data, some of which was from harvested from 20 years of research, were asking us as practitioners, clinical, you know, clinical practitioners working hands-on in, with clients, with people getting out of pain, they said, please go use this stuff and come back and let us know what you find out. And I took that to heart and very much made it my business to pursue more fascially oriented education immediately after the Congress, which included a very labor intensive skin to bones journey that I participated in on uh, with an anatomist, Gil Headley. We did cadaver dissection labs. So that was one of the first things that I made it my business to do after the Congress was I said, well, I need to look at this stuff as close to living as possible. And so because I didn't have access to cadaver dissection labs in school, it was something that I chose to do later, later as, as one example. How it informed my journey practically in my clinical setting was one of the things I learned in the Congress was that to engage fascia, I needed to work differently with my hands than I had been for massage. And the two differences were, one, I had to work more tangentially, or you could call it superficially, meaning I wasn't digging into the muscles deep or direct. I was working at more tangential angles and I was working much more slowly in terms of my pace and my rhythm. Slowing down and working angularly or tangentially, I'm talking to fascia. Speeding up and working more directly, I'm talking to muscle or ligament in my work. Both are relevant. And if I'm going after resolving a pain issue, I needed to change those two things in my own practice to then see what would happen. And it turned out a lot happened very fast. Um, One example, I had been working with a person who had chronic neck pain, doing all my best muscle work. 
I started shifting over to working with her fascia. And in her case, I was helping her, but wasn't helping her all the way. In her case, working purely with fascia, she had a three-year chronic neck issue. And in eight minutes, her pain was gone for the first time in a very long time, working fascially as opposed to muscularly, which I had changed in my own work, which was pretty amazing. Wow. That's incredible. I mean, that is really amazing. And I love how you talk about the how you work with your hands and the pace really shift the focus of what part of the body you're trying to work with. Like as if you're talking with one, as one approach. And then if there's another, there's a different type of approach. Yeah. Another case that's coming up, actually a woman that I uh, had been treating virtually, if you can believe it, because she wasn't in my town. She recently got back from a trip. She had had a very questionable response to a carpal tunnel surgery and has been getting shooting nerve pain in her fingers. I worked on her physically for the first time yesterday. And the second I started working on her, she fell asleep. Wow. And I'll explain more in a moment about why creativity and analysis come into it and being analytical. I knew I needed to work on her hands-on. I could help her a little bit to do her own self-care. And I was so glad that I could see her because she was getting shooting pain and scar tissue. She had a carpal tunnel surgery. So her scar tissue is healed enough to be touched and worked on no problem. Scar tissue is the ultimate chaos. It's the ultimate creativity that the body can generate in terms of there's this injury that happened in the moment that happened in this case because it was a functional injury from surgical intervention. And the body has to decide, okay, I had this surgery. I had this event. I have to figure out how the heck am I going to organize around that? So the laying down of fascia and scar tissue, which are interchangeable. Fascia is scar tissue and scar tissue is fascia. There is a chaos to it that if you were to look at it under a a microscope, if you were to look at an image of scar tissue, the chaos of fascia is amplified because the body's like, whoa, this isn't where it was before. Something got cut through. Something Something needs to be pulled together that I didn't originally organize. And in her case, it was a surgery that was done it was an even more chaotic situation because it was an emergency surgery. So a lot of the normal protocols that would be followed weren't able to be followed. So there was chaos on top of chaos in the healing process for her. And so a lot of Western medicine didn't quite know what to do with her or how to help her because it was an atypical situation. And so my creativity with working with fascia, working with scar tissue over years from being asked by researchers to go experiment said to me, I know what I need to do. I need to be able to enter into this chaos in a functional way and then follow the information that I'm finding as I go, which doesn't sound particularly analytical. And if you were to watch the session progress, you'd be like, what is going on here? But I had a very organized approach to the chaos that was there to say, okay, I'm going to have to go in, see what's there do all my best analysis, understanding work, and then let all of it go to then be in the moment with this client right now and see what's happening in her tissues and how are they changing in the moment. So I would have to then let go of everything I know to be in the moment and then draw on it as it's relevant. Just to better understand that, 
maybe this is not only specific to this case, but when you see a client understanding this client situation, in this case, it was a result of a emergency surgery and then really having to assess what the situation is that caused it and what is the state of, I guess, her fascia, and then trying to understand what is the best way to bring healing and to alleviate that pain. Is that right? Yeah. And I realized that I didn't even get to the punchline of the story, which was when she fell asleep, it was because for the first time in many, many days, she had relief from her pain almost instantly. And her nervous system was like, okay, finally we can rest lights out. (laughs) Oh, I see. I see. So basically, so basically the surgery had caused a tremendous amount of lasting pain that wasn't being taken care of. And that was because it was through her nervous system was keeping her awake and therefore she wasn't sleeping. Is that right? That's right. And when she was awake, the pain could come on seemingly out of nowhere, even if she wasn't doing anything, which to me is a classic, we want to look at your fascia situation because I know what I know about fascia, which is still 2007, not that long ago, still relatively new information And those researchers still weren't like, and here's how to apply it. They were saying, listen to what we're offering, try it out, spend a decade or more figuring it out and come back and let us know what you were able to do. That was and has been what I've been up to for over a decade. In this context, the work keeps proving itself even to me, my foray creatively into her fascia in this particular situation to say, I don't know what's there. I need to be able to intelligently go looking confirms all of the analytical components of how do I use what I've generated in terms of information in the past to move intelligently into chaos with this particular woman at this particular time. And the immediate feedback was evident the way she was able to feel that for the first time in a long time, she had no pain in her hand. That was what allowed her to fall asleep. It was quite rewarding and confirming that I'm on the right track with what I am learning about how to enter into chaos creatively. So it sounded like this woman had gone through some of the traditional routes of finding pain relief. You mentioned, I think, physical therapy, OT. Is that a common route for people to have to exhaust that to come and try out something not as known? And are you finding fascia entering some of these different areas? Yeah, I will say yes to all of your questions. And indeed, fascia, most people don't know that they have fascia to begin with. And in going and talking about it to folks and explaining it, a lot of even physical therapists haven't had a lot of training or education around it, not because they weren't paying attention, but more that they had so much else to focus on in school Uh, and in their training, that it might have gotten missed. What I see clinically is a lot of physical therapists refer to me if they haven't been able to fully help their patients. And I have a lot of physical therapists that I treat, that I work on directly. That to me is confirming as well. So a lot of my practice is filled with patients that I'm either co-treating when a physical therapist says, you know, I'm helping this person, but I'm not helping that much. And I've slowly been able to connect with those folks. The thing that I'm wanting to do more and more is teach a review of fascia 
to physical therapists. That's one of the goals that I have in, in order to get this information out to as many intelligent hands as possible, physical therapists, OTs, massage therapists, whoever is interested, that's who I want to talk to. Because the word is getting out slowly to answer your question about how known is it that fascial work can be helpful. I'd say the word is getting out slowly and it's still some relatively new information being that it's only been out there and visible as it has been since 2007. As far as I know, in terms of the information being presented in the United States anyways, I'd have to learn more about other countries and that'll be my, some of my next adventures. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting because, you know, when I hear you talk about fascia, I, it reminds me of, there's a lot of our body that we don't really understand and that there's, that's why we continue to do research. And, you know, more recently I've heard a lot of interest around gut health and how that unlocks that. And so I feel like fascia is a similar thing that there's a lot of exciting unknowns and maybe it can unlock a lot of problems. I mean, you've brought up the pain part and that, I mean, that's a huge problem. It's really exciting to see that there could be some natural ways to really address such an acute problem. You're reminding me too of another thing that I learned in that Congress about fascia, which is, we'll call it unruly fascia or fascia that is out of balance can wield a force on the nervous system on its own that is stronger than steel. What they discovered in in the way that fascia is arranged and how it's arranged, it's designed as a net of support around the body and around all the organs, including the gut. And if the fascia has become out of balance, either poor nutrition, not enough hydration, not enough movement, which is a big one for folks these days, a term that I'll use that you'll understand when I say it, which is movement deprivation. A lot of bodies are not getting enough movement in their day. All of those factors can create dysfunction in the fascia. And if the fascia is held too tightly, for example, fascia is engineered brilliantly to be very lightweight, intelligent, very able to respond in the moment. And it's so strong, in fact, they discovered pound for pound that its contractile capabilities and its what is called its tensile strength is stronger than steel. I I feel like my mind is really blown by just the potential. And I think that's what's so exciting about this field. It's right. It's like so much untapped potential and really just the possibilities are so wide ranging. And we're just, it sounds like we're just at the cusp of this. Yeah. And in terms of going creatively into fascia, when I'm working hands-on, Equipped with this analysis, what's exciting is I've experienced hands-on enough times the ability to touch with ounces of pressure this system that is stronger than steel and feel it change. Oh, interesting. So I can can touch this system that has the tensile strength stronger than steel that, unlike steel, can change in a few moments— with a few ounces of pressure. And sometimes that's all it takes, which to me, when you talk about mind-blowing, I absolutely agree. It's interesting because, I mean, we all know the effects of what painkillers have done. And, you know, this sounds like a very natural and powerful way to address some of those issues. 
It's true. It's true. And we are armed with and equipped with one of the most amazing, call it gifts, which is the gift of what it is to receive touch and how that influences all of the systems in the body. The ability to feel touch, so the sensory ability is the first to develop in the human body and is also the last to fade, which to me sends me a message. This is a really important function. This is a really important system. If it's the one that the body places priority on in such a way, it's got my attention. One book that I've read recently that references, I was smiling when I saw that it was referenced, a book called Brain Rules. And this is by John Medina. He talks about touch and he references Tiffany Field, whose entire body of studying and research and work over her years has been around touch. She writes a book called Touch that explains the importance of this and how it affects the entire system. To your inquiry about painkillers, it is a tremendously quiet and untapped resource in contrast to a lot of the painkillers that are taken in pill form. From what I'm experiencing or hearing about, similar to what you're describing about a lot of use of painkillers, it's a missed opportunity at this particular moment in time to see what touch can do. Yeah. I feel the need to just highlight other ways to address such a, a huge problem, you know, of pain and, and something that, you know, for whatever reason people might experience. And so it's really encouraging to see your passion for this work, um, your curiosity about where it's leading and really just trying to bring that relief to your patients and clients. Well, thank you. It's nice to have a venue to express this enthusiasm. (laughs) (laughs) So I know, you know, let's zoom out a little bit because ultimately, and we've talked about nerves as well as analytical and being creative, and this dances around the topic of neuroplasticity, right? It's kind of like, how do we expand using our brain? And do you have a take on that? How do you approach that? Neuroplasticity is a favorite study of mine. And the approach that I have is one, I'm very glad that my brain with all of its systems has the ability to integrate new information on a daily basis and use all of the analytical skills that I have at my disposal to use to then be like, okay, what do I want to do with this information and how do I take action on it? It's fun because when I think of neuroplasticity and the intersection of analytical and creative forces, I think about analytical as the use of my past and creative as my ability to navigate the present moment. I'm realizing it as I'm saying it, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I love realizing things in the moment. (laughs) It's great. It came as the collaborative work of getting a chance to talk with you right now. It's the collaborative brain space we're sharing, talking about neuroplasticity, that is, there is truly no substitute for it. I'm, this is where I'm really grateful for technology and the ability to connect in this way. Did the technology not exist, we wouldn't have a chance to talk right now, being in two different places. And when I think about my brain's ability, neuroplasticity as a term, if it's new to people, is in shorthand, my brain's ability to change itself and my brain's ability to heal itself as I go. 
unlike a computer that it has its hardware and that's it, if I want to update the hardware, I have to either change parts or I have to download a new software. The brain does that on its own without me adding anything or taking anything away physically. It's happening, but not happening as far as my conscious awareness is concerned. And hopefully nobody's adding hardware without my knowing it. Um, <laughs> we're not even, we don't even have to talk about that. That's, that's for a different podcast. That's what, that's for the, the conspiracy theory podcast. Sorry. <laughs> no. And so is neuroplasticity, is this something that, I don't know, is it involved with your research with fascia or are you, do you explore this on your own as just an area of interest? Yes, it happened quite by accident that it evolved with my research. And it happened by accident because a teacher I was working with at the time, Dr. Benjamin, who helped me to learn about ligaments ages ago, this was back in 2010, I think it was when I really started to take a deeper dive and study with him one-on-one as an apprentice. It turned out he liked my speaking voice when I took a class with him a while back and asked me if I would be the introducing voice on webinars. And he happened on one of the days that we were just about to get started on a class, he happened to mention this book, The Brain That Changes Itself. And I heard that title and he gave me the context. He was giving an example of how someone who lost 98% of her vestibular function, her ability to balance, had it restored and is able to walk. So she had no ability to walk because she had a negative reaction to an antibiotic that she took that wiped out her vestibular function using tools from a person that was developing alternative methods of helping people restore vestibular function. They explained it in chapter one of the book, The Brain That Changes Itself. The author is Norman Doidge, D-O-I-D-G-E, if I'm pronouncing it properly. And it explained this miraculous recovery was possible because of this alternative intervention. And that alone, as a subtext, was exciting for me as a person in Western medicine to be considered an alternative practitioner. Now we're being called complementary, which is kind of nice. But depending on who you ask, I would still be considered alternative medicine. So to see an example of, quote, alternative medicine helping someone who had lost 98% of her function was profound to me. And when I read that, You know, it might have actually been in 2009, now that I think about it. I had been newly into discovering how to work with fascia in my practice, finding people who could teach me more about how to do that. I found some local practitioners that were also working with fascia that showed me some some ideas to say, all right, try this and try this and try this. And then I'd go back to my practice and try all these things and see how they worked. All the while as I was practicing in my clinical setting, I was also reading this book. What I was discovering was we know more than we think we know. And then there's things that we don't know that we don't know. And here's a book that talks about a few examples of that. And here's the research. The other one that I'll mention about neuroplasticity that blew my mind was around visualization. A study was done that compared people who were visualizing working out and people who were actually working out. And the control group that worked out, I think it was a 22% building of muscle mass after the workouts. The people that had visualized working out had something like between a 12 and 18% development of muscle mass, purely from visualizing working out and doing no physical working out. 
Oh, interesting. So this is actually not, this is not a study of visualizing to actually do the workout. It's actually just getting the results of it from visualizing. Yeah. Visualization of exercise helped me grow muscle. Wow. I really wasn't aware of that. (laughs) Yeah. It blew my mind. That was one of the studies that was pointed to in the brain that changes itself. And when I was working with fascia, reading about neuroplasticity, understanding only years later that I was all the while integrating my understanding of both into my sessions. I look back 10 years, 15 years later to be thinking to myself, wow, I really integrated that more than I realized. And I'm so glad that I did because I didn't understand why the results I was starting to get were so much better even than I could have imagined with what I was expecting to happen with working with fascia. And it was because I was using a lot of the insights from reading about neuroplasticity and how brain change can happen and how to set up environments to nurture more brain change. And I was doing that subconsciously in my practice. And I'll explain one example in a minute. The harmonizing of those amplified the positive outcomes. That's amazing. Yes. And please say your example. Yeah. The biggest change was in my language. So in my practice, when I was in school, when I was listening to colleagues, when I was listening to physical therapists, I'd had an opportunity to teach interns in a physical therapy clinic as a neuromuscular therapist to teach them about trigger points. That was in my twenties. And one of the things that I consistently heard when I went to teach was in the background, the actual PTs that were working with clients would say things like, wow, that muscle is really tight. You feel how much weaker that one is than the other one, so on and so forth. I would hear people focus on what's tight, what's wrong, what's not working. When I read The Brain That Changes Itself, one of the things they pointed to was the importance of my use of language. The more I focus on something, the bigger it gets, was the underlying theme. And then, so I thought to myself, if I'm focusing on what's tight on a client and I use the word tight, their brain here is tight. If I focus on, oh, that's really dense or gummed up or sticky or stuck, their brain here is sticky, stuck and goes there. What would happen if I eliminate all those words? And I did. I don't use the word tight in my practice. I will, if I focus on anything, I'll say, Hey, do you feel how your right shoulder is freer? You feel that there's a, that that side is working a little more easily and draw the attention to that. Yes, we might be working on the left shoulder injury. Isn't it great to introduce to the brain of the person I'm working on the ease in the body? One way it was said in a class that I took recently back in June of 2019 or July of 2019, this woman, Angela Crowley said, I want to recruit the rest of the person to solve the problem. And with language, I discovered over time, wow, that's what I'm actually doing is I'm recruiting all of the things in the person that are working really well to minimize the tightness, to minimize the stickiness, to minimize whatever. I don't need to feature what they're coming in for. They already know they have the problem. My job is if I want to succeed with my client, if I focus on what's working well and amplify that, I'm doing my job. If I focus on the person's pain and talk about, oh, this is not working well, this is tight, this is this, this is, I consider that a personal failure. 
what's great is I don't fail on a daily basis. <laughs> I, I don't use negative words in my clinic uh, at all. I, I have never found it to be productive. And in fact, when I teach other practitioners how to maximize what they're wanting to get done in their practice, that's something that I focus on. I say, use your words and use them wisely. Because in the context of neuroplasticity, the language that I focus on, the energy that I focus on gets amplified by the brain. There's a component in the brain called the reticular activating system. And a lot of times people will reference, if I buy a red car, all of a sudden, all I see on the road is red cars. Or if I'm looking to buy a red car, all I see on the road is red cars. I'm like, oh my God, all I see is this thing. Or another example, people say, don't think of a pink elephant. It's almost impossible unless unless you're some kind of super genius. And if you figured out how not to think of a pink elephant when someone says that, please let me know how you figured it out because I'm very curious. I deeply agree with you on what you said. And there's so many different things that I drew from what you just shared. One is that kind of like expanding your mind by reading and you know reading about neuroplasticity. I think is such a great way to see what the possibilities of our brain. Are is, you know, in doing that in parallel with your practice and also the power of language, I think these are all really important points. And we'll talk about this more, but it sounds like there, you know, at least with the book and your practice, there's some cross-pollination there and that, that they were able to really amplify your work. And then also I completely agree about language we often, I think as a society, focus on what's wrong and trying to fix the problem. I love the reframing of it to focus on what is going right or the part where you want to lift and, and solve it. And, and so I like that example about the shoulder um, and one feeling freer than the other. And so not only in this area, but I think in all areas, we should really watch our language and that there is power in words. Yeah. What's true, I'm realizing as we're talking again, is in the evolution of use of language in my practice, I used to watch my language when I was learning about the importance of it. And now I'm choosing my language and I'm finding that the evolution in myself is to get creative with it. And why I feel like I can get creative is because of being able to analyze past positive results. And again, that comes into analysis as a productive use of my past to then jump to the present moment to creatively use what I've learned from previous data. And there's no substitute for the acquisition of data point after data point after data point in order to make the most intelligent decision in the moment right now. So I love, I'm loving the takeaway about analysis and past tense using it productively to work with creative in present moment, because present moment is the ultimate creative place. I agree. And I think there's something to be said about what you are creating in the moment. And you have to use a lot of maybe the knowledge and experience that you've had before to get to the place of confidence that you can navigate the unknown in the moment while you're doing that. Yeah. And I would add in parentheses without thinking. Mm, that, that's a definitely a, a higher level. <laughs> right. There are more and more moments. This is a, a fun thing to look for and look forward to as, as you go along, as I go along is where did I do something? 
how did I know that? when I do something that seems like it's out of the blue or very natural, but it's the first time I'm doing it. How did I know that? Working with the client that had the carpal tunnel issue and the, and the shooting nerve pain, I knew exactly where to go on her hand, even though I had never touched her. How did I know that? And I had to sit afterwards and unpack it. And in talking with you right now, I'm discovering how I knew that. And it's mentioned in the book Blink, Malcolm Gladwell's book, he talks about, and I'll, I'll frame it with language that is not the language of the book, but is the same idea as achieving excellence in the moment can only come from thousands of hours of practice prior to the moment showing up. In his analysis, the only way to bring mastery to a situation that I've never experienced before, to bring mastery to a new situation is to have had thousands of hours of experience in other iterations, which I find fascinating. It is a lot of practice and whatever topic that you're trying to learn or new area. Uh, and I think this is something that it's benefits all of us if we're constantly expanding our horizons and learning something new, but putting in that time at first, no one's going to be great on day one. There's always going to be there. Yeah. There's always a day one. And so putting in the time and sticking to it and keeping dedicated to get to a point where it becomes second nature and you can create in the moment. And I think that whole experience, you know, nothing is wasted. And that whole experience is so rewarding just to experience that. Yeah. I like what you say about nothing is wasted and, and it's a beautiful choice to make. I loved hearing Jessica's passion for fascia and how in her practice, she's able to combine elements of neuroplasticity as well as analytical and creative mindset. Here are a few takeaways. One, through listening to Jessica, I have a newfound respect for fascia, the connective tissue that surrounds every organ and contains nerves. I learned that when you touch the system with just a few ounces of pressure, it is actually stronger than steel, but unlike steel, it can change. Number two, Jessica believes that the present moment is the most creative place because you can create what comes next. She has dedicated a lot of time and energy to her training to hone her analytical skills in this field. She uses knowledge and experience to get to a point where she can navigate the moment. In her sessions, she is equipped with analysis, but practices being in the moment to creatively navigate solutions to her clients' needs. And number three, I loved how Jessica applies neuroplasticity to language. She has always been passionate about neuroplasticity and would read a lot of books on the topic. What she realized that she subconsciously was incorporating was she was learning to language, which changed how she talked to her clients. In her sessions, instead of focusing on the negative problem, such as one leg being more tense than the other, she would reframe and draw the client's attention to the leg that was doing well and focus on how that leg was freer. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I have more great interviews of analytical creatives that I'll be releasing. If this episode or topic has inspired you or reminded you of something, I would love to hear. Listeners have sent me links to podcast episodes or artwork that reminded them of analytical creatives. You can email me at theanalyticalcreativepodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also find me on Instagram at the underscore analytical underscore creative. Also, I want to give credit to singer-songwriter Tiana V for creating my fun and upbeat podcast theme. Go find her on Facebook and Instagram at Tiana V Music. 